HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon. It's 12 o'clock, and you know what that means. It's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, We're going to talk about a new, um, well, somewhat of a new trend in dining in what they call fast casual. My guest today is Adam Eskin, the founder and CEO of Dig In Seasonal Market. He has 11 restaurants throughout Manhattan and is growing to 15 in the next 12 months. Adam and his team at Dig In are pioneering the farm to counter. That's a trademark. Uh, movement by serving delicious, healthful, high-quality food that is sustainably sourced, freshly prepared, and accessible to all who care to enjoy it. Prior to establishing Dig In, Adam had a career in the finance industry, serving as an analyst and working in private equity. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks a lot for coming in today. I really appreciate you um, taking the time out of your day for this. Thanks, Katie. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Appreciate you having me in. Okay, great. Um, Your sound quality is terrible. What are you talking to me on? Uh, I'm talking to you on a phone. I'm sitting in a conference room. Ah, okay. But you're not on speaker, right? No, I'm okay. not. All right. Sounds very echoey. Um, but I guess we will we will we will manage nonetheless. Um, so first of all, tell us about Dig In uh, for people who haven't heard of it um, and don't know it, as in everybody who's not in Manhattan. And how does it differ from other fast casual restaurants? Sure. Uh, so we, as you as you know, we got eleven restaurants all in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what we're about is, uh, first and foremost, a commitment to the food. Um, so we spend a lot of time um, across all our restaurants, and a number of folks here in our support team, I think we have uh, six or seven folks in the food and beverage team now, um, really, really committed to, to sourcing, to the preparation, and to the quality in terms of making the food from scratch every day. So the, the lion's share of what we do is, is vegetables. Uh, so that could range, depending on the season and what's rotating in and off the menu, a sautéed cauliflower or a roasted uh, sweet potato 
or uh, or a roasted Brussels sprout and so forth. Um, you know, I'd say 70 or 80 percent of our menu is vegetables. Um, you know, though we do serve salads, that's not the core of what we do. Um, you know, you can really get all these different uh, vegetable-based sides. The menu in itself is a differentiator. Uh, and the second thing that we focus on uh, is accessibility. So, you know, um, what we're trying to accomplish is serve sit-down, fine-dining quality food um, that's prepared right in front of you, coming out of the saute pan, coming off the grill, coming out of the oven uh, for your eyes to see, um, and executed at a level that you otherwise find with a sit-down restaurant, but we're serving it to you in a fairly fast-paced environment. You're walking up to the counter, and we're sort of making the food in front of you to go down the line. Um, uh-huh. And we're offering the food to you at a price point that you wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve where you, did, where you go into one of these sit-down restaurants. So so compare your price point to, say, like a Chipotle or like the kitchen in uh, Colorado, something like that. Because yeah, they're so sort I mean, of achieving the same thing. Sort of that, 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 that's sort of polarizing examples. So our, really? our price point is, is, is very much consistent with that which Chipotle offers. Uh-huh. Um, and so we have a small plate and a big plate. Small plate is typically what folks uh, offer for lunch, and then the big plate is something that's more appropriate for dinner. Uh, and the small plate ranges in the call it seven to eight fifty range, and then the big plate in the nine to eleven plus range. Wow! Um, and you know, for us, let's take the wild uh, salmon for example. So we're serving uh, an amazing piece of either coho or sockeye salmon. It's wild. It's not farm raised. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't really get that anywhere. But were you to be able to do so, that's a you know twenty two, twenty four, twenty six dollar plate. Uh, and we're selling a small plate for nine bucks and a big plate for eleven. So how do you do that, Adam? How are you doing that? Uh, uh, it's challenging. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, yeah. we invest a lot of time and effort in developing and working directly with all of our partners. So folks that are growing the produce, um, folks that are raising the animals, um, and the folks that are pulling the fish out of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, a, a big part of our business. Um, is predicated on our ability to control our supply, and rather than go through the traditional uh, distributor network, um, we're maintaining relationships one to one. And then, should we need assistance in moving, you know, cases of whatever it may be from point A to point B, we'll bring in folks to help us do that. Uh, and we also do some of the distribution on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. Number two, um, our business is built on volume. Right. So. Um, while we're charging less, you know, we rely on uh, long lines every day, um, particularly during the lunch period and, and to an extent at dinner as well. A lot more folks coming through. If, if, if we can get our uh, the number of our checks up relative to what other folks are doing, but the price point's lower, uh, we can make up for it that way. Uh-huh. Fascinating. I really i am loving this. Um, so uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about how did you, uh, as a financial analyst, get into the restaurant business? I mean, doesn't everything tell you that this is the wrong business? <laughs> I mean, without a culinary background, I mean. It did then and it does now. Um, it's certainly a challenging industry. I think one of the most challenging because, you know, they tell people you're in sort of the everything business. You're in the people business, the retail business, mm. the logistics and distribution business. Um, uh, you're in the real estate business, on and on and on. So no. it's, it's fairly complex, uh, particularly when you start to think about scale. Uh, my background uh, was in the investment business, um, and, and I sort of fell into this somewhat opportunistically and you know what started out to be you know somewhat of a challenge investment uh turned into what i perceived to be a real opportunity um so i got involved with one of our smaller portfolio companies when when i was an analyst or an associate that matter um and i I had a what at the time was intended to be a one-year stint um operating the business um and and the concept at the time was 
uh, go in for a year, parachute in, get things set up, bring a team in, and and then sort of come back to your seat here um, in the investment business. Uh-huh. Um, what we un- what we uncovered at the time, um, you know, made it such that I, I didn't have the opportunity to come back, but rather we had to roll up our sleeves, uh, proverbial sleeves. We had a lot of work to do, and um, over the ensuing couple of years, what, what ended up happening was. Um, you know, we saw that what we had gotten involved in was 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 no longer um, going to prosper the way it had, but that there was a very clear opportunity based on where the world was headed, um, based on what was going on in food at large, what was going on with food as it relates to media, what was going on in terms of obesity and mm-hmm. sort of awareness around food and what we should and should not be eating. So we were able to sort of take the concept uh, on an evolved basis um, and, and basically reposition the old business and launch something entirely differently. And that that was what really got me excited, the opportunity to see what was going to unfold over the next 10, 20 years right. uh, and be involved in that. So when you took over the existing business, how many locations was that? It was I, I know I, that I read what it was, but it was like some sort of, you know, bodybuilding related gym. I, I mean, it was food, but it wasn't food. I don't know. What was Correct. it? Correct. <laughs> uh, all of that's true, Katie. It was... Uh, <laughs> There were there were five units, and it was a concept that was catering to bodybuilding era. Right. Um, so we, we've gone through all these different fad diets over the time, and there were the protein shakes and the bars and the egg yeah. omelets and the no fat and the no fat and no flavor and, you know, sort of a complete lack of culinary inspiration. But, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 90s when this concept got started, it was resonating with folks because we knew a lot, a lot less about food and what good food and real food uh, means. Um, back then relative to what mm-hmm. we know today. Right, right. So what was your, what dictated your model for Dig In? Like what, uh, you know, you, you, you're speaking to some of the trends, but um, really you guys are quite different from the other fast casuals, I have to say, in your model. I mean, I've, you, there's one in my neighborhood and, um, and I observe that there's like sort of some prepared foods and then people are making some foods and then there's a lot of takeout, but there's also some sit down. It's kind of an interesting um, mix of um, stuff in a way. So h- how did you figure that out? Because as I say, it, it differs quite a bit from others who are trying to fill yeah. that similar niche. Uh, well, we're still figuring out, I would say. Um, so it's an, it's an ongoing process uh, for us just in terms of how we evolve. Um, and we expect as we start to think about moving to new markets and leaving New York, um, it will evolve further uh, uh-huh. based on the tastes and preferences and, and sort of, you know, unique characteristics of those markets that we move into. That being said, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to live um, somewhat in between what the fast casual folks are doing and, and what the full service folks are doing. We want to be able to serve, uh, and we have kitchens that are at, at a level um, that is fairly sophisticated, you know, much akin to a full service operation, but right. we want to provide, um, you know, that type of food coming from that kitchen in more of a quick service environment. Um, whether you choose to stay or you choose to go, um, that's up to you. If you go, you know, we'll... We'll, we'll put the food in one of our custom compostable trays, uh, put a lid on it, and send you back to maybe your office or, or if you're running, uh, running home after a workout. Uh, but we also now have, you know, full china, forks, knives, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, beer and wine on tap and things like that if you want more of a sit-down experience, which is more conducive to the nighttime. So we're trying to fill that sort of void, and we, we, we feel that we're not, we're not the only ones, but it's really part of a trend where, you know, thinking about going down to a sit-down dinner, the prices that come with that, um, having full wait, wait staff service, um, having the, the tipping component of your meal. Um, you know, we can provide a similar experience, not just as it relates to the food, but, you know, a really, really warm, comfortable environment that's well-designed, that has the right lighting, that has the right music. Um, we can provide that experience um, without 
the wait staff and without sort of you know the time it takes to go through sitting down and reviewing a menu um, at, at a much more accessible price point. So it's been it's been a journey, and we're still. Uh, <laughs> I guess evolving, uh, but it's working nicely. Well, um, so to go back to the when you were talking earlier about um, your distribution model, that's something I'm always really interested in um, because you do work with um, smaller producers on the whole. So, uh, what are you finding are the biggest challenges to working outside of that typical restaurant supply chain where you don't have the Cisco truck backing up with the produce and you know whatever? How, what what's hard, what's the hardest about that? Do you find to working with smaller entities? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a number of different uh, nuances and in, in components as it relates to the challenges with our supply model. Uh, but the biggest one has just been the passage of time. You know, the reality is when we're thinking about our menu, um, it changes based on what we can uh, both source from a seasonal perspective as well as, you know, just the consumer preferences and what folks want to be eating in the spring and summer versus the fall and the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you only get, you know, that many you only get that many seasons per year, right? So, you know, we have four seasons. We look at it as more like five or six seasons. But, you know, once the season's gone, you got to wait till the next year. And so in the context of reaching out and working with new partners and developing new relationships and then fostering those relationships, it goes on a bit of an annual cycle. Um, and because of that, it just takes a long time. So we've been at it, you know, for four, five, six years now, uh, and we have a whole team uh, on the food and beverage side committed to um, to working with these partners and building and fostering. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, particularly when we're not able to charge $25 uh, right. for a meal that, that, that has wild salmon, right? So, you know, we have to uh, build these relationships such that, you know, our partners are willing to come to the table and talk to us about things like volume and scale in the context of price. And while we, you know, we may necessarily be able to pay as much as the next guy, you know, what we're going to be able to commit to uh, in terms of the continuity of our relationship and the volume of our relationship and how that can grow, you know, we found that to be a feeling uh, to a lot of folks. It just takes time. Uh-huh. Very interesting. I mean, I, I and, that, and that makes me wonder, like, how do you uh, keep your prices down, given the fact that you're not sourcing from the commodity chain? Like you're, um, you know, you're building relationships. But at the end of the day, a far, you can't beat a farmer down too much on his price. Right. I mean, you know, you still have to kind of play ball with what are the true costs for them. So that's I mean, again, I'm, I'm just curious about how that that delicate balance um, really operates for you. What's the what's the magic? Um, what's your magic? Because I think it yeah, is no, kind I, of magical, I, I, Adam. I know we agree. I mean, I think <laughs> we come to the ta- we come to the table with more of a, a, a partnership approach, where we say, "Hey, what's going to work for you, and what's going to work for us and our uh-huh. customers, and how can we do this together?" Um, in some instances, um, you know, we've gotten creative. Um, we'll say, "Okay, listen, um, you're getting ready for the upcoming season, and you're going to need five or ten thousand dollars in upfront cost to." gather all your seeds and get your supplies going and, and, and get those first couple of turns of your crops going, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put that money up on your behalf. So rather Whoa. than having to come up with the money, we'll work with you, you know, some of the smaller farms and folks, um, and we'll make a commitment. And, you know, we'll try to understand their cost structure. I think while some larger, medium, and, and larger size uh, farms and partners, they have a pretty good handle on the economics of their operation, uh, some of the small folks don't. 
Right. And so we find that there has to be an education process where you're working with them and helping them understand what is and what is not going to work and what this thing can look like, you know, as the season and the years pass. Um, we worked with other folks and, 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 and decided to help them in other ways, um, sending them up to Cornell, for example, for a weekend course in food safety, where we, uh-huh. you know, we've been working with, with somebody and let's say the produce isn't coming exactly in the way it should be, right? And let's say there's some brown spots that we're finding and, you know, we're talking to the farmer and giving them feedback. But he or she does not have the infrastructure and the systems in place quite yet to catch all these things. Right. Um, so rather than say, look, this isn't working, we need perfect kale or broccoli or whatever, uh, and we just move on to the next larger, easier relationship, um, we'd rather invest and cultivate those relationships because we know long-term those are the things that are going to pay the most dividends. Uh-huh. Fascinating. Because that, 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 that always brings me to the question that I, that I ask and have been asking for six years now when you're dealing with, you know, sort of smaller local or more local um, producers, which is, you know, the production side, like when a farmer gathers his crop in, um, he doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure for washing and packing it or, um, you know, or trucking it. So how do you deal with those infrastructural issues? Like, are you guys going and getting the stuff and cleaning it or, or do they have are you working with entities like co-ops where they have some sort of system available for that? What's what's that um, what's that part of the puzzle look like? Yeah, all of the above it just depends on the, the partner. I see. Uh, you know, there's certainly a pretty significant logistics infrastructure that exists um, on the East Coast and, frankly, you know, nationwide. Um, and we have uh, basically a distribution hub um, that, that we operate ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, up in the Bronx, up by Hunts Point Terminal Market, mm-hmm. uh, if you're familiar with Hunts Point. And that's where, you know, something like 70% of, of, of New York's produce goes through this distribution hub on a daily basis. It's a couple billion dollars of produce. So yeah. we selected a site for our own distribution that's only a couple blocks down there with, with the understanding that there's already a pretty significant supply chain and distribution infrastructure that's already feeding um, that particular area in the Bronx. Right. So it makes sense for us because when we're talking with other logistics providers, um, we're able to say, hey, look, it's likely that you're already coming to Hunts Point, you know, with so-and-so cargo or so-and-so number of pallets or trailer loads. Um, mm-hmm. We're two blocks away. Let's figure out how to make this work and link up. You can stop up here, pick up a pallet there or, or do this or there, um, and then just drop it off on your way over to Hunts Point, which is two blocks away. So that's really worked well for us. Fantastic. Um, I think we should take a short break, Adam. We'll come right back after this sponsor drop, and then let's talk a little bit more about sort of the trend that you represent and what's going on there. Um, So we'll be right back with Adam Eskin from Dig In Seasonal Market. Stay tuned. And this is Anxieties by The Landing. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. 
In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com. I love that new commercial. <laughs> Welcome back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm speaking today with Adam Eskin, the founder and CEO of Dig In Seasonal Market, a restaurant chain that is expanding exponentially. Um, It's mostly based in Manhattan, but obviously you have plans to expand further on. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the national trend that you fit into with, um, with places like Chipotle, which is a little bit more of a QSR, quick service restaurant, or versus the kitchen, for instance, in Denver, um, Kimball Musk's place. And I'm sure there are others that you know of. What, what do you see in terms of um, the consumer and the public and how they're perceiving your restaurants and, and, the, um, and, and where you see yourself fitting in on a national scale? I mean, in New York, you're obviously sort of preaching to the choir. You have a pretty educated population here. But when you see yourself expanding, what, how do you see that unfolding and where would you go next? Sure. So I think... Um a lot of us that are focused on this um, this end of the market, we're sitting at, uh, I think, the infra- intersection of the confluence of a number of different trends that have been unfolding over the past couple of decades. Um, started in the grocery channel with, with what Whole Foods uh, has done uh, beginning in the early 80s, right? And that's been going on for a few decades in terms of just a greater awareness um, for what it means uh, to serve and to consume and to grow um, good food um, and how to think about things like pesticides and how to think about things like processed food versus natural mm-hmm. and whole foods. Um, so we, we, we sort of began there. Um, we have media, uh, frankly, to thank quite a bit for what's also going on in the food landscape. I think, you know, 50 years ago, um, you know, when we thought about cooking on a national scale, we had one celebrity chef, and now when you turn on the television, um, you know, in 2015, you've got 50, uh, 75, 100. Um, mm. It's hard to count. We've got folks like Michael Pollan that have been writing books and, and folks like Alice, Alice Waters that have been leading the way, um, movies like Food, Inc. and, and Super Size Me. So right. um, all of those types of things have been contributing not just on the coast, not just in New York or, or, or California and L.A., but, but nationally and globally, you know, there's just such a heightened awareness around what we're putting in our bodies and, and how that sort of manifests itself in day-to-day and in health. And, and, and that's against the backdrop of, of this burgeoning, excuse me, not burgeoning, but, but obesity trend that's been, been, been going on over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, right. If you go uh, either CDC or one of the governmental websites, you can see the map. And as it clicks through each year and decade, you know, the, the colors change in the maps are said that the obesity rates are getting higher and higher and higher. Um, and so I think just overall public awareness and an understanding as to what it means to really consume the right type of food and how that manifests itself in, in health and how you feel every day. This is the stuff that's going on. We, we see no end in sight. We, we think it's only going to accelerate. And, huh. and so our perspective is, it's now taking, I think, that sort of uh, heightened awareness yeah. um, and, and springing into action in terms of how to make these things accessible. So accessibility can mean price point. Right. Accessibility can, can mean do I actually have an option like a dig in or another or a Whole Foods or another type of concept in my neighborhood, right? Or or, or have they not made it to me yet? You know, um, what are the other opportunities? Are there farmers markets, right? Can I go and actually buy fresh produce, or am I only limited to processed sort of grocery items um, in, in sort of in my area? So. 
So I think all those things are coming together, and, and that's that's what we want to be a part of. Ultimately, we want to change the food system. Um, there's a lot of components of the food system that are completely broken, dating back to the last 30, 40, 50 years, and there are a lot of good reasons why they're broken, and that's fine. And I don't know that um, it was a bunch of evildoers thinking that, you know, we were suddenly going to break break the food system and, 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 and um, you know, make us all obese, but it's it's happened, yeah. uh, and now that we know about it and we know what the ingredients are and what the recipe is to fix it, I think it's going to take folks like Vivian and others, um, you know, as catalyzers to really move this thing forward. Yeah, I know. You just uh, you just answered my next question, which was how do you see restaurants like yours changing the food system? But um, clearly it's a, it's a matter of, of access as well as um, education, right? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think with the, with, with the food system itself, what, what, where we're fortunate is that we're having a conversation with the consumer in real time, right? Yeah. So people are coming into our restaurants every day for lunch. They're coming for dinner. They're giving us feedback on our website uh, through other social media channels. So, um, you know, that, that, and that dialogue is growing. So we can understand what they're looking for uh, to the extent that we, we ultimately believe that maybe some folks don't know what it is they're looking for. We're here right. to educate them. Um, and then we can take that demand and that understanding as to where we're headed, and we can go back through the food chain all the way to the growers and the producers and say, hey, you know, this is what we need to do. This is the type of change that we need to affect. And, you know, for example, we, we can't necessarily buy your food or what you're selling unless you start to think about it this way. And so mm-hmm. our ability to control sort of the dialogue with the consumer front and center really helps our efforts in terms of going back to the whole supply chain and back to the food system and trying to affect change. Well, let me ask you, how much do you actually do that? Do you engage in dialogue with, say, the Smithfields, the Cargills, the Tysons? I mean, are you working with those groups at all? Or, I mean, I don't see that you're sourcing that. And, you know, I'm not complaining. I mean, I think you guys are doing a great job. But, I, but I'm just saying, like, that's something that I really notice about the progressive food movement in general is like, um, you know, they've assumed that these guys are all on the side of the devil. And so they don't want to have any kind of dialogue with them. And as a result, certainly the meat industry, which is a particular interest of mine, has become increasingly siloed and very, very paranoid about new types of restaurants uh, like yours. And, you know, really see them as a threat and a challenge as opposed to a potential, uh, you know, new opportunity. And I I think that it's a great, uh, a great misfortune that they're isn't more uh, dialogue between uh, restaurateurs such as yourself or Steve Ells or whatever. And I know, Steve, I know that Chipotle does talk to big growers um, without much, (laughs) so far without much effect, but it's going to happen. I mean, I do think that the purchasing power, the volume that eventually will um, accrue to your type of restaurant will start turning the tide. Um, But I want to talk for a second about um, Wall Street because your business was financed by the investment group that you had worked with before. Um, how typical is it for um, a, 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 an investment uh, group like yours to have gone in, bought a restaurant chain, and, and thought about you know sort of making a quick profit or or a long term commitment as it turned out to be? Is that a typical type of move for that kind of group, or was that an unusual opportunity for you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's happening more and more. Um, you know, you're hearing a lot of people talk about. Um, how the food space in general, uh, restaurants as, as one sector, food tech is another mm-hmm. uh, phrase being thrown around. Um, you know, it's drawing a lot of interest at, at various stages uh, along the growth cycle and the capital structure of, of, of these different brands and concepts and companies. Um, you know, so I don't know that, you know, we were particularly unique or special in today's climate. 
um, maybe five, six, seven years ago before this thing really started to pick up some steam? You know, I think so. Um, but, you know, what a lot of the, the, the folks in the investment community um, they think about evaluating long-term uh, investments, you know, a lot of it, at least for us, when I was there, was driven by, you know, what's going on on a macro basis. You know, what do we see mm-hmm. unfolding over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Right. Um, another thing that I think is very important um, for a lot of these folks when you're underwriting these deals is, how big is the opportunity, i.e., how big is the market? Um, I think that's one of the other reasons, or I guess part of the confluence of why there's so much money swelling into the food space now, which is you're sitting at the intersection of a massive market, right? Between grocery and restaurants, you get a trillion and a half dollars. And when you think about the food system at large, like the whole thing, you're talking about trillions of dollars, right? So yeah. you, you've got massive scale on the one side of the ledger, and on the other side, uh, you have the perception that a big piece of that massively scaled industry or industries is going to change, right? There's going to be significant change. So when you slap those two things together, um, it often makes for compelling opportunities for investment. And that's why I think there's so much money flowing into the space these days, and I think rightfully so, um, which is exciting. You know, the more opportunity we have to attract capital, um, the more firepower we have to do the things that we need to do, not just short-term decision-making, right. um, but, but making decisions in the spirit of the long term. Uh, you know, that leads me to um, question the influence of Wall Street on congressional leadership. And um, would you say that Wall Street uh, is waking up to the impact of the progressive food movement? And would they then be more willing to uh, lobby Congress for changes in the food system than they have been uh, to date? I mean, um, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about trillion dollar businesses. I'm thinking uh, Kraft, General Foods, Archer, da- uh, you know, Archer Daniels uh, Midland. I mean, those are the food systems or the food businesses that I think of that are worth trillions of dollars and something that Wall Street has a real interest in. And I wonder uh, how much Wall Street can pressure them to change their models. And do you see that? Do you anticipate that being uh, part of this program? Yeah, um, you know, my um, I, I would limit my commentary on this <laughs> topic the following. I, I I don't know enough about um, politics to really understand what would be required, um, you know, to sort of change things. But I, but I do ha- have a particular sensitivity to how government works today, um, how things like campaign finance work, and how yeah. the reality is that until you know something significant happens. Um, or someone steps in and leads significant change, that it's going to be very challenging because the reality of today is that the folks with all the money, um, they're able to push the buttons and, and pull the lever. So that's why I think it's particularly important that the consumer-facing businesses and brands, whether they're in the restaurant industry or just food at large, that we're committed to doing what we're doing, that we have viable business models that can grow and scale, that are focused on impact, that are focused on change, and that as a result of that can, can attract real capital. Right? I think that's the way we move the needle, and that's the way we have mm-hmm. impact. I, I wouldn't be particularly confident if we felt that our only path forward was to, to rely on you know, the political machine to change, because I think it's just so entrenched. Uh, and how we operate in Capitol Hill that, that I'd be concerned. But the good news is if we can attract capital, we can grow our businesses, and we can go from 11 units to 500, and, and these folks can grow from this size to that size, and, and, and we start swapping out you know, French fries and burgers for kale and Brussels sprouts at scale, that's real impact. Um, and you know, as, as our, hopefully as our business grows, um, you know, we have um, sort of larger and broader aspirations um, to have impact 
outside the four walls of our restaurant. So I, I see that being, you know, the real path forward for us. I, I would be hesitant um, to sort of rely on any real change uh, today vis-a-vis the political machine. Yeah. Well, so then, um, so I'm going to ask you to imagine a scenario in which you do own 500 restaurants. Um, Chipotle owns 5,000. Um, and, you know, the kitchen is expanded and, and all of the other people who are sort of filling in, you know, following behind you guys. Can you imagine yourselves engaging in some sort of political battles regarding, say, for instance, environmental issues that are, ensue from industrialized ag or, um, or say, an antitrust lawsuit to address the vertical integration of the meat industry, for instance, which has been something that's been bandied about by, you know, some progressive or, or say, labor and immigration policies, which are, um, you know, very much dependent on uh, cheap labor and undocumented workers to make those businesses profitable. Um, do you guys see, do you ever see yourselves as, as becoming more of a political entity instead of being the consumer-driven, um, you know, faith of of the quote-unquote progressive movement, can you imagine restaurant groups like yourselves uh, ever doing battle on on Capitol Hill um, to try to force some of the changes that we need from industrialized... You talk about, you know, instead of serving French fries, we want to serve kale and Brussels sprouts. Well, that's great, but the thing is, is that, you know, most of our arable land is devoted to commodity crops like soy and corn. So that would take, you know, that would definitely take some lobbying uh, with, say, uh, Chuck Grassley of Iowa to say, you know what I mean? To say, like, you guys should be growing those cold weather vegetables up in Iowa instead of all that corn. You know what I mean? Like, this, I'm, I'm looking for that. I, w- I want you to say, yes, I want to do that, Adam. Yes. <laughs> no, no question. And, yeah, I think that's just part and parcel with, you know, sort of capitalist driven success to the extent that we're fortunate enough to, you know, be selling Brussels sprouts out of 500 restaurants or otherwise. Um, I think at that point, and then probably well along the way, before we get to that point, we will have the opportunity, we will have some more clout, we will have the right connections, we will have the capital uh, to have a bigger seat at that table to start to push and pull some of the buttons that are currently being pushed and pulled by other folks. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for, buddy. I'm looking for lobbying there, because there with you, Katie. it I'm all there. comes down to, to pushing these yahoos in Congress, many of whom the level of education seems to be unbelievably low. I mean, the bar for getting into public office is apparently, you know, like literally my daughter could do a better job of running the country at 19 than I than I see a lot of these congressional representatives. I mean, just listening to what happened after Charleston this week, and, you know, I'm sure you listen to, like, people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz saying, well, I'm not sure it was racially motivated. I mean, it was right, just, you right, know, it's right. like, what? Yeah, well, I, I, I had the... Um I had a recent experience, um, uh, I guess less than six months ago, over the past 18 months, my best friend from college and, and former roommate, we lived together for four years, mm-hmm. um, he ran for a house seat uh, in District 5 in New Jersey. Um, really? And he ran an amazing campaign, and he you know, worked his butt off, and um, you know, I'm not going to sort of get into the nuances of his campaign and, 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 and sort of in, dem- in Democrat versus Republican, that's not what I'm here to talk about, but... You know, for me, just, you know, having not spent very much time in politics in any capacity, um, it was somewhat somewhat eye-opening, just sort of understanding, you know, as a 34-year-old young man, his values and how he was thinking about sort of the future of politics and and what he would have hoped to accomplish, you know, should he have had the privilege and the opportunity of getting there. Yeah. but, 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 you know, I think the hoops and the challenges just on the campaign side, when you're up against, you know, call it like a seven-year uh, incumbent with three or four right. million dollars in the war chest, yeah. it's very challenging. And, uh, and who has and, a political and, and so machine at his disposal. 
right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Adam, I guess we should wrap it up here because I'm out of pretty much out of questions. Unless there's something else you want to talk about, like the future of Dig In and what other restaurants you think are coming up behind you, and are you mentoring people? What are you doing? What's the plan? Yeah, no, that's, a, that, that's a great question, the mentor thing. So what we, we, we've, uh, we've been seeing, uh, which is really excitement, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, excuse me, it's, it's, it's necessarily limited to folks coming from finance, but um, generally speaking, um, given what we're up to, given what we stand for, given, given our values and sort of our mission and, and what we're trying to accomplish, what we've been seeing um, is an, an, an enormous um, influx of talents um, that's coming into the food industry. Um, yeah. Folks that are either five or ten years out of college or just graduating, um, you know, from all sorts of wonderful institutions and universities. Um, there's never been more of an interest um, in this subject matter and in playing a role and in having a hand in changing the way we eat. And it's really exciting for us. And so we see it as an opportunity, you know, not just for our business, but the food industry at large, the more talented, passionate people that otherwise maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago would have been, I don't know, lawyers or bankers or right. doctors or investors, whatever or the case may be. Or analysts um, like you. They're, they're finding their way into the food industry, you yeah. know? And, you know, I think that when you have the motivation and the drive and we have the capital behind us and we have the talent, um, you know, I think that, that that's a real recipe for change. So we just, anybody listening, we would encourage... You know, go on to our website or any of the brands or concept websites that are doing really interesting stuff. You know, we've got 9 million jobs posted at all times. You know, there's no, um, there's certainly no dearth of, of opportunity here and elsewhere. And if you're passionate about what we're doing and you want to uh, have an impact and, and you want to play a role, uh, come find us because we're looking for you. That's great. So um, the website, by the way, people, is, Adam? Dig in, D-I-G-I-N-N-N-N.com. Very good. Um, thanks so much for your time today. This is really interesting. I hope you'll come back and keep us posted on what's going on with Dig In. I want to see how you guys keep uh, progressing. I know you're going to open another three or four restaurants this year. Um, and then next year, maybe another state, yeah? Yeah, that's uh, that's the plan. Uh, just uh, setting our sights right now and getting pretty close to points and triggers. So, uh, you know, before you know it, we'll be in a couple different markets. We're really excited, Katie. Thanks for having me. Oh, really it's been a pleasure. And yeah. I'll stay connected. Great. I hope so. Thanks so much, Adam. And thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery. And uh, thanks, as always, to my engineer, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 